Hello, and welcome to Controlled Pod Into Terrain. Uh, we are a multimedia podcast about air and space mishaps, putting them in the broader context of how and why things went wrong. Just as a note for those of you that were with us in episode one, we've added some new and defined sections, um, which we'll call out as we go along. So we're, we're just sort of trying things out until we find a good structure that works for us. Now, to introduce myself and my co-hosts, my name is Ariadne, and my pronouns are they and them. Jay? I'm Jay, international them of mystery, and uh, I do the science stuff and engineering, and my pronouns are, as I said, they and them. And I'm Kira Dempsey, better known as Admiral Cloudberg. My pronouns are she and her. All right, today we're here to talk about this, which was, was, at one point, uh, Pan International 112. Um, This is a completely ridiculous story involving every kind of fraud, incompetence, tax evasion, bribery, espionage. This was a wild ride for us to research because we just kept uncovering crazier and crazier things. Uh, but first, we have to do some sort of news thing. I still love that this is our official news slide. And it will continue to be until we find something better. <laughs> how, how could you beat this, though? Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so our first, our first news item... Our first news item, yes, baby, baby Lockheed's first day out. A um, an F thirty five pilot ejected from the plane while landing in South Carolina, and did not know where the plane went, and, in fact, it was missing for quite a long time, long enough that the, um, <coughs> the military was like, "Hey, if you've seen it, please let us know," which spawned obviously. You can make a lot of jokes about this, including the slide, which is, um, was the stable, diff- stable diffusions attempt to illustrate an F-35 departing with no one in it? It's a highly advanced AI-based reconstruction of the event. I, I think what astonishes me most about this is that the, the, the distance between where the, the last known position of the aircraft for the pilot ejected and the, the debris field, I think was something like 50, 50 miles or like 80 kilometers. Like it was not a very long distance. And and I just, was it in hover mode? Did it just kind of gradually drift away from him or did it fly in little circles? <laughs> the idea of it being in hover mode, just slowly drifting away is, <laughs> is really funny. <laughs> just, just the world's most expensive hot air balloon. Just this, this stealth diamond kind of just gradually going wherever the wind pushes it. Uh, yeah. And obviously, you know, our first joke was, well, of course they can't find it. It's stealth. But then it's like, actually that, that may be like not even a joke. <laughs> oh no, no. I, I think this is, this is a hundred percent. It presumably they, flies they without I mean, ADSB as well. They, it was difficult to track it on radar. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the thing is that when you eject, it intentionally scrambles the IFF system on these planes. And that's what the transponder is built into. So it would have had no transponder. And yeah, it, it, it's a stealth plane. It doesn't make very much of a radar echo. So yeah, they, they just couldn't find it. And, and, and I think that that's sort of, obviously, Jaya, will defer to you when we start to get into the subject, because you are the, the RF engineer and expert. But it's not, they don't, they're not invisible. They just, they, they might broadcast, or they might return a radar signal in a different direction than you're expecting or in a different frequency than you're expecting. So if you know where to look for it, you can kind of find these. 
And the fact that even we couldn't find it means that stealth is very impressive. And the guys in, in Marietta did a really great job designing this. Well, I mean, it's possible that actually they couldn't find it because it might have been at quite a low altitude. And with planes at low altitude, you have to actually do a lot of decluttering on the on the ra radar signal that's coming back. And one of these stealth planes, because it returns so small of a, a radar return, you know, they're they're coated in material that absorbs microwaves and you know, you have all of that. Uh, it means that this clutter reduction that you have to do when you're when you're scanning close to the horizon might just make it impossible to see this thing. It, it might just not have been possible for them to see where it was. Yeah, and the sort of low frequency avionics that are, are necessary to find an aircraft like this don't don't work well with the, sort of like a look down shoot down radar. So like an AWACS probably would not have helped. Yeah, I, I have no I have no doubt. I mean, they definitely have radars that can find these things, but that's usually when it's moving very quickly. Um, they become much easier to to find if they're moving very quickly because, you know, ground clutter doesn't move quickly. It's kind of its defining property. Uh, whereas with a plane that's moving moving very quickly, you have a lot of Doppler uh, effects, so you can actually pick it out from the from the background that way. But if this wasn't moving very quickly, uh, by all accounts, it was coming in for a landing so it, it would have been moving quite slowly it, it just might not have been showing up on any of their instruments well we choose to believe that it was hovering yeah <laughs> so. oh, no obviously and, and and i also choose to believe that there were like marines with with like a net like a butterfly net just chasing after it but it was just just out of reach yeah mm -hmm. i think that's what it tried to illustrate on the right here i, th I think that's what what stable diffusion was getting at well this this flipper creature over here, I think, has, has the right idea because he is he is running for his life. And that's that is what I would be doing. So why don't we go to the next slide and next news item? Okay. All right. So our next news item uh, is as you could see that, you know, three three sort of queer people on a podcast were gonna have strong opinions about gender reveal parties, but that is not the subject of this slide. Yes. As as many of you probably heard a couple weeks back, there was an accident involving a plane that was attempting to drop pink, some I don't know, gender juice on a um, <laughs> on a gender reveal party in Mexico. But pulling pulling up sharply while dropping the load puts a lot of stress in the wings, and the wing fell off, and the plane crashed, and the pilot unfortunately died. Not the first pilot to die during. A gender reveal. We're not even talking about first person to die during gender. Multiple pilots have died doing these things. It's really yeah, silly. These are these are very specially built airplanes. Um, they can handle high G loads, but it's usually a constant high G load, right? So what happened in this appears to be the pilot saw terrain, tried to go full throttle and haul back on the stick at the same moment he was releasing. Now these things hold twelve hundred pounds of fluid, right? So that's you're basically dropping the weight of three Honda Fireblade motorcycles instantaneously at the same time you're loading up the wings. And if these things are corroded or, you know, the, the maintenance was not done well, I think it's very easy to see why something like this just kind of folds in, part, folds in half. Yeah, you're going from the wing being loaded in one direction to the wing being loaded in the other direction. And that is a, inherently a lot of movement for, for the thing to do. 
this kind of yeah. thing happens to water bombing planes a lot. Um, the uh, smoke smoke jumpers um, ha have these planes which are fitted out to be tankers, and uh, you know they they sometimes do this thing where they actually sort of swoop down on the surface of a, a body of water and just skim up a whole bunch of water and sometimes they will crash pulling up at the end of that um, because the wings have come off well more uh, more likely is when doing a um a run on an actual fire and they often try to um go downhill during the drop and so they dr they drop all everything out and they have to pull out at the bottom of the hill and that's and that's what gets them it's yeah i don't yeah, i don't they... know of i don't know of major wing failures involving purpose-built water bombers that scoop up directly from lakes yeah it's but it's, yeah it's, it's always old yeah. modified like lockheed electras or like a, that, that famous c-130 and in a lot of these cases there's pre-existing maintenance issues we don't know if there are pre-existing maintenance issues in this particular gender reveal accident um there's speculation that there could be but there probably don't need to be any pre-existing issues for this to happen. You know, a bunch of news stories called this thing a jet. I don't know why. I mean, you can see the actual propeller at the front there. This is a PA-25, Piper PA-25, which is a pretty much purpose-built crop dusting plane. Um, they're almost all used for crop dusting and apparently gender What do you reveals. mean you don't need a, a crop dusting jet? <laughs> Well, the, you don't need no. a crop dusting jet, but this plane doesn't even have a turbo. There weren't no, even it's, any so, turbo. So, there, there are some. There are people out there who know so little about planes that jet just means airplane to them. Either that, Literally. or they just they just found out what a turboprop is because they saw a Cessna Caravan or Pilatus PC12, and they went, "Oh, I thought all those planes had had engines, but it turns out they all have jets too." I will. Yeah, well, I, I will not inquire further. I mean, on the other hand, we are talking about the kind of people who would have a gender reveal party. People, babies don't have a gender that develops later. Okay, just just let's get clear on this. Right, gender you. Our policy is only you can only do a gender reveal for yourself as an adult. <laughs> okay. All right. Shall we move on? Uh, yes. Next slide, please. Our third and final news item was. Um, yeah, so the best way to get a cheap and free Ural Airlines A320 is to just have a field and wait. Because, what do you know, it happened again. After um, the 2019 incident where an Ural Airlines A320, A321 actually in that case, landed in a field outside Moscow after ingesting birds into both engines, I wrote an article about that. This month, <laughs> they did it again. This time because... Um, they ran out of fuel very awkwardly. So allegedly what happened is this flight was approaching Omsk when it diverted for, at the moment, unclear reasons. And either just before or during the go-around, they suffered a hydraulic failure that affected their, um, their braking systems and for some reason we don't fully understand the logic on this and it doesn't make a ton of sense the pilots decided that the runway in Omsk wasn't long enough and they wanted to go to the slightly longer runway in Novosibirsk um, and they thought they would have enough fuel to get there but because of the hydraulic issue the landing gear doors did not close the drag from this 
and a headwind was somehow not properly factored, factored in, and they realized halfway between Omsk and Novosibirsk that they weren't going to have enough fuel to make it, so they just landed in a field before actually running out of fuel. So they landed with about five minutes of fuel left on the plane. So, so we should get a couple things out of the way. One, this is still a fairly impressive landing, right? It's, it's always impressive to, not quite dead stick, but to, to land an aircraft that has some sort of hydraulic failure in a field. Um, is landing an aircraft anywhere that isn't a runway. And if it's not an aircraft that's designed to land other places besides runway is impressive. Not flying into Omsk makes total sense. I have an ex from there. I wouldn't want to fly there either. Maybe, they, maybe she was there and they decided to turn around. I don't know. You, if they filled a whole plane with people who wanted to go to Omsk, I mean... Uh, I, just... I guess. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I don't understand it either. But, but here's, here's my question, Kira. So you, you obviously understand the Russian subcontinent better than a lot of us. Mm -hmm. How far are those two places apart? Um, they are around... Shoot, I can't remember whether it was 600 kilometers or 600 miles. I, I think it's they're 600 kilometers apart, about... Okay, so we're talking about hours of flying. Yeah, yeah, we are. Time. And there, there aren't a lot of cities out there. We're talking about Siberia here. Novosibirsk is probably the nearest airport to Omsk that has a longer runway than Omsk does. But, you know, that is a serious diversion. You've got to be sh really sure you have plenty of fuel if you're going to do that. Especially yeah, it, if your landing gear doors are hanging down there causing all this drag. And we, we looked it up. So the, the Omsk airport has its... It has a main concrete runway that's like, I think we looked it up, it was 75 or 8,500 feet long. So it's a full length runway. They also have a grass strip next to it that is more than a kilometer long. And clearly these guys knew how to land in grass. So they're yeah, still and within the By their next grass. to it, we mean off the end of the runway. They have a, they have a 1,000 meter runway overrun area. But it's like, you know, you could overrun for days, it was not going to matter. And and doing it there is probably is probably safer than trying to land in a field. Which great, the outcome was perfect here. But you know, what if there was a ditch? You know, it's not it's it's not better to land in a field than it is to run slightly off the end of a, a very long runway. What if the nose gear collapsed? I mean, you can you can end up cartwheeling that plane across the field real easily trying to land on a I, on a. I would say. I mean, I think that. Uh, the nose gear collapsing is probably not as much of a risk because if it if it collapses, the worst that's going to happen is it's going to drop the nose in, and you're going to rip the you're going to rip the, the nose open and rip the avionics out, which is very expensive. But you probably already have a pretty totaled airplane anyway. Well, you've also totaled the engines. Yeah, the bigger risk is exactly is if you're landing in a field, if you hook an engine wrong, this thing can very quickly cartwheel. In the previous Ural Airlines field landing, they did hit a ditch, and they did land on the engines, ripping them off, but actually everyone was fine in that case, too. However, um, I mean, they got lucky that time as well. <laughs> yeah, these guys just keep rolling 20s. I think that's the problem. Well, it's like they'll get themselves, they, they get, keep getting themselves into these situations. I don't know, it's just, it's so, it's so funny that this, this airline would land two A320s in fields within the space of four years. And it's like, it's every time they're like, it's a miracle. Can we, can we expect any sort of investigation from the Russian government on this one? Hopefully. I haven't checked recently whether the Interstate Aviation Committee is, is investigating this. If not, then... Cause, so the thing in Russia is that the Interstate Aviation Committee, an international body, investigates major incidents and accidents 
However, if there is not substantial damage to an aircraft, it will typically be investigated by Rosaviatia, which is Russia's equivalent of the FAA, and they are completely untrustworthy. So it, there may be, I don't know whether this will be investigated by the Interstate Aviation Committee, who are relatively trustworthy, or the Rosaviatia, in which case, if it's them, we will probably never really know the truth about this incident. Realistically, I think there are three aviation experts in this podcast who can look at that and go, yeah, there's substantial damage to that aircraft. Apparently, there's there's really not very much damage to it other than some dirt that went into the um, went through the thrust reversers and some minor damage to the landing gear. That's what I've heard anyway. They are apparently planning on flying it out? They are. I don't think they've done it yet, but that's the plan. I mean, the, the alternative is that uh, Ross Aviatsa uh, might take this as an opportunity to put the boot into Airbus because, uh, you know, obviously they're kind of in a bad situation for Airbus service and uh, parts right now. And they, they might say, well, you know, this wouldn't have happened if you hadn't sanctioned us to death. Yeah, this is, this is one of the airplanes that was illegally seized from lessers in, over in other countries and re-registered on the Russian register. So this is one of those planes. They can't, they can't take this plane out of the country because it will be seized. Um, and it's also hard to find parts for these. So that, whether that has anything to do with the accident, I don't know if we'll ever know for sure. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into this in, in the future, but I, I think just for listeners slash viewers, most aircraft are not necessarily fixed by the airline that's painted on the tail. So you have, in a lot of cases, you have you have the huge major airlines, right? So your domestic big three, like Southwest, these guys will have their own maintenance crews. But for a smaller airline, especially maybe even a regional airline or a low cost airline, large heavy maintenance is almost always going to be done, subcontracted out to one of the bigger airlines. So Delta has Delta uh, Tech Ops, which does maintenance for a ton of other airlines and cargo operations because they have the infrastructure to do a full aircraft teardown to pull engines off. So that, I, I would probably assume that Ural is using Lufthansa Technik, who kind of has, they who probably, dominates that I'm, They probably market. were. I mean, they, yeah. have their, they have their own, um, like, Ural Technik thing, but I don't know the extent to which they can do heavy maintenance. And so obviously they're finding someone to do, well, maybe they're not finding anyone to do this heavy yeah, maintenance. I, they, think... I mean, there's, there's, there's reports that some Russian airlines are just not doing it. <laughs> We're, we're probably before, basically before the war, Russian airlines overwhelmingly got their heavy maintenance done um, in Europe, especially with Lufthansa Technik, and now they can't do that anymore. And it remains to be seen what the consequences of that will be. And I've I've flown Aeroflot. I know it's their. I've also flown airline. Aeroflot. Yeah, but <laughs> I have no idea what their sort of depot level maintenance capabilities are, especially since these yeah, are these are not. I don't know. I don't know either. I just know there are very few. I don't think there is zero, but it's pretty close to zero is the, num the number of heavy maintenance facilities in Russia approved to um, to perform heavy maintenance on um, Airbus and Boeing aircraft. And, and what I will say is I think uh, there was some sort of expectation when the sanctions first hit that pretty soon either they were going to have to stop flying planes completely or the planes were going to start falling out of the sky. And that's not, that is not the case. They will continue to get counterfeit spares through China. They can get black market spares that are flowing through places like India and the Middle East. And they can also just kind of forge their own parts, right? So obviously Russia has 
not recently, but they have a long history of aviation. So there are there are ways of kind of stretching this out, not to mention that a lot of these aircraft have so many different redundant systems that it it's going to be a while before the aircraft becomes genuinely unflyable. Yeah, but it's 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 going to be a slow degradation of safety levels over time and I wouldn't be surprised if we saw an accident that was eventually connected to this. It could this accident could be connected to these changes. But I don't know if I don't know if we'll ever know. <laughs> no. Mostly I think I want I want the CVR because I want to know the conversation that went on in this cockpit. The the decision tree was fascinating. Yeah, right. What was behind the decision to go to Novosibirsk and what was what what were the fuel calculations that they made? Because the pilots, so the pilots basically claim that they were halfway between Omsk and Novosibirsk when suddenly their fuel levels dropped substantially and continued to drop rapidly until they landed. But I, I mean, I I use that excuse a lot, you know, like when when sometimes you have a bike and sometimes a third of a tank on a bike is actually a quarter of a tank, and sometimes it's empty and sometimes it's a third. Like that that excuse works, but like that's on a used Honda CBR six hundred R. Mm-hmm. Like these yeah. guys, you, did, did, did you at least try the book, the World War Two trick where you tap on the on the gauge to see if it comes up? I, I don't know how much tapping does in a completely fly-by wire glass cockpit. Um, I maybe don't maybe you have to actually go into the avionics bay and tap it there. Maybe. Oh yeah, slap it on top like it's an old CRT monitor. Okay. All right. Um, anybody got anything else to say on on Urals? I think let's go to the next slide. Okay. Which is, right. oh yeah, cor which is basically corrections. Things we didn't me mention or said last episode that were wrong. <laughs> yes, so we're calling this No Tap. This is Notice to All Podcasters. Okay, so uh, last episode we said that ALPA covers all airline pilots in the U.S. It does not. It covers most of them. Some of them are non-union. Some of them have uh, their own separate unions for their particular airline. Uh as far as the Alaska Airlines incident in at Santa Ana Airport in California, we did not mention that it is a likely failure of something called a trunnion pin, which is a part of the landing gear. Um, this is a known defect in the 737 that these can these can these can go, and this exact failure mode will happen. Yeah, and people were speculating about this at the time we recorded that episode. We didn't mention it, and it turns out, based on the NTSB preliminary report, this actually was a trunnion pin failure. The um, the landing was was conducted within the G force limits, but the gear collapsed anyway, and the trunnion pin was found broken. So, so yeah, it turns out that is probably what happened. Yeah. Okay. Um. um and then, oh, go ahead, Jay. I was going to say that's a very expensive metal pin. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, I think we we I, I'm still curious. Well, I've checked the tail number on that aircraft. It has not moved from Santa Ana. Um, so I, I will keep an eye on it. We will report back if that aircraft ever flies again, but I, I do not think it will. Oh, and the last thing is we had, a lot, we had a lot of comments wondering about our audio quality, and to that I say we've never done this before, and we're working on it. <laughs> yeah, we're working on the RSS issue, so um, you know, we, can, we can try and get the audio podcast going. We've got a lot of requests for that. We do obvi obviously want to remind people we have a lot of slides, so the visual component is not required, but uh, it, does, it does certainly provide the full experience that we're building out. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we move to our next section? Oh, we have a title slide. What is this? I don't even. Yes. So this is, this is what is this? I don't even. So what are we talking about? What is, what is today going to be about? So today, 
Uh, we're going to be talking about September 6th, 1971. Um, we are going to be talking about a flight called Pan International 112, which was on a BAC 111. We've got a lot of weird repeating numbers in this in this episode. Yeah. So our first, very first question. What is West Germany? So Kira, you, you speak German, right? No, I speak Russian. <laughs> oh, okay. So you speak East German. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Okay. This, ha- this happened in West Germany, so, so that's useless. But uh, the good news is, is I did Duolingo for about three and a half years. So you speak German, Ari? Oh, no, God, no, not a word. Ich spreche Deutsch. Schreckliches Deutsch, aber trotzdem Deutsch. Good job. I don't know what that means. So, all right, next slide. Okay, so we are going to talk a little bit about European charter operations. So uh, the reason we're doing this, okay, so, so I'll take a step back, listeners. So this is going to be a little different because the actual accident sequence in this crash is very, very short. It's also very simple. There's not a lot to sort of explain um, during the accident sequence, and, and that will make sense as, as we start to do it. Um, but it does require a lot of context. So I, I promise you this is going to go to some wild places, but it will all start to make sense as we, we start putting the dominoes down on the, on the, the, the table. Um, okay, so Jay, can you give us sort of a brief explanation of how the EU charter system works, uh, why they all go to the same six places, and none of them have noticed how goddamn pretty their own countries are. Okay, so every year there is this period in usually August. It, it depends which country you're actually from, but there it's sometimes called the European August rotation where the Germans visit France, the French go to Italy and Spain, the Italians go to Spain as well. Nobody goes to Switzerland because it's not winter time. Some go to Latin and South America. This is not colonialism, honest. But particularly in the 70s, there was a lot of sort of these package holidays that would be offered by travel agencies because those used to be a thing that actually existed. So you would book your summer vacation with some um, travel agency, uh, Carlson Wagon Lit or um, Thompson was, was another one. And it would be one price. It would include chartered flights there and back. It would include a hotel at your destination. Sometimes it, e- it even included a rental car when you got there. Um, often not, though. But yeah, so there were a lot of these little charter airlines flying weird little planes full of weird little people all over Europe. Weird little people, otherwise known as the Europeans. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you can see on the slide here that these these trips were definitely not on a hub-and-spoke model. Uh, at that time, there weren't quite so many airports as there are now. But uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of toing and froing, and it was mostly on these these charter airlines, which were usually pretty small. Yeah, so like you know, you'd call a travel agency number from an advertisement in a magazine, and they'd and they'd book everything for you. You wouldn't even necessarily have know or have to have heard of the airline that is going to be carrying you on these. And oh, you almost yeah. certainly wouldn't. Yeah, you, you no, until, unless, wouldn't. you know, you happen to see the name on the side of the plane as you're boarding, is what I mean, you know. But other than that, no. Shall we talk a little bit about tax scams? Yeah, next slide, please. Okay, so, Kira, would you like to walk us through the infinite money tax che- scam that these yes. guys found? Yes, so, 
Sometime in the mid, mid to late 1960s in West Germany, the government wanted to support the ship, local shipbuilding industry by making it easier for people to buy ships. And so under paragraph 82F of the Income Tax Implementation Ordinance, it became possible for a West German corporation to receive a tax write-off equal in value to 240% of the depreciation on a newly acquired means of transport. So the idea was you provide special depreciation and then it and then you people can invest money into buying ships as basically a way of sheltering their money from taxes. And this is this is kind of the the way, you know, various things have been funded sort of sort of like this where investing in a certain type of in, of industry or type of project allows that that money to be to go tax free but the, the I, this was especially lucrative because of the the 240% special depreciation i mean normally normally a big asset like this would be depreciated over 5 years so being able to claim 240% of the depreciation actually means that you can claim more tax against the depreciation than you would actually have been paying for the thing in the first place. So you can, yeah, and you can take that excess revenue and you can just kind of keep reinvesting it into more and more of these scams and it just kind of becomes very easy arbitrage. Yeah, so basically in sometime in the late 1960s, a German shipping magnate was began doing this, basically said financing a new ship by, so they, they so you, by selling limited shares in the in the the ship itself so basically the way that this the way this works is you buy a limited share in the ship and your money goes toward buying the ship you don't get a percentage of profits instead you get access to the um uh the 240% special depreciation so if you have if you have to pay a lot of taxes you can spend that you can spend a whole bunch of money buying limited shares in this guy's ships and then his accountants will declare that the value of the ship has decreased in value or that the ship has decreased in value and enough so that 240% of the depreciation of your share comes out to more than you spent on the share and so you have a net saving in terms of um, taxes not paid and yeah as as Ari said, it's basically it's basically free money. Um. <laughs> it sounds it now it, it kind of it almost sounds like a Ponzi scheme. That's not right because it's there. There is actual I'm going to say legitimate business technically, but but what it, the way it is similar to a Ponzi scheme is that this sort of it constantly requires infusions of cash to keep buying new airliners, right? Because you can only depreciate something down to zero once. Yeah, basically. You, you do this once, and then you know you've depreciated all the depreciation that is going to depreciate. So then, what do you do? You buy another means of transport, right? <laughs> you finance another one. You get a bunch more um, people with more money than sense. So we're talking basically highly paid professionals who have a lot of money but not a, are not very investment literate are the kinds of people who are getting into these projects. So let's go to the next slide. So 
Pan International, our airline in this accident, was founded using this scheme. So in fact, the Pan International was the first of quite a few airlines in the aforementioned vacation charter industry that decided to take advantage of this tax scheme to start airlines with zero starting capital. So, and some of these airlines never even intended to fly passengers. All they had to do was finance a plane and claim the tax write-off and everybody would make money. <laughs> In fact, that's sort of the ideal, right? Because you, you, if, if the, the ideal business has no employees uh, and no customers and, and no product, right? The, the ideal airline is one in which you never have to sit in the airplane, the airplane never has to move, and you don't have to fix the thing. Yeah, and obviously this was intended to support the builders of means of transport, um, specifically Hamburg shipbuilders. But it didn't say that you couldn't do this to, with an airplane, so people did it with airplanes. And it didn't support anything to do with the German industry, because the planes they were buying were not built in Germany. But this was technically legal under the way that the ordinance was worded. So Technically legal is the best kind of legal, I think you'll find. Exactly. Some, again, some of these airlines, quote-unquote, never intended to fly passengers, but Let's meet our anti-heroes of this story. Um, the chemist, Tassilo Trommer, who is shown at left, and his, his business partner, um, a young businessman named Jürgen Botzenhardt, who owned the Pan-Europa Travel Agency, which is a small West German travel agency, and they wanted to vertically integrate their operations by starting an airline that they could put their own passengers onto, right? And, these, you know, and they saw the tax loophole as a great way to do this with virtually no capital. So, so they decided they wanted to use this, this scheme to become an actual airline. I mean, as ideas go, it's not the worst. I mean, it, it, it makes some kind of sense, right? Okay, but here's why it is the worst. Jay, because the, the three of us are aviation experts who have studied this for the most of our lives. And if I said to you, do you all want to start an airline with me tonight? What would you say? Yeah, definitely not. No. Exactly. You'd say, no, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> yeah. Then someone said, if someone came along and said, what if you could get people to finance a plane for you using this tax write-off loophole and we wouldn't have to put down any money toward this airplane? I would still say no. I mean, that's stupid. I'm sorry. I mean, one of the one of the big problems with this is that you're not leasing the plane. You own it. And so therefore you have to actually figure out how to operate the thing. You have to have to have all of this stuff. So that's a really good point. So I, I'm going to I'm going to hop in here and say that. OK, so for those of you that this sort of don't necessarily know the business side of airlines, there are a couple of different ways that an airline can come into an aircraft. They can finance or lease it through a company like GE Capital or uh, Udvar Huse's company, whose name, name escapes me right now. And basically, this, this is either a, a sort of pay-to-own eventually or a lease where at the end of the lease, uh, the, the aircraft becomes the lessor's problem. There are wet leases, dry leases, but the most important thing is that if you finance an aircraft, you are required by the bank to use their approved maintainers, right? You can you can hire your own, but they're going to say you have to meet these standards, they have to have these certifications, right? You have to, they typically go above and beyond what something like the FAA or the modern EUSA will require. 
Now, for this scheme to work, Pan International has to buy these planes outright. So there are no requirements as for, uh, from, a, from a lessor or a financier. Yeah, also they are buying these planes. They are going to buy their planes brand new because obviously you get the most depreciation out of a plane that is new becoming a plane that is used, right? So they're buying brand new off the lot from major manufacturers. Tessilo Trummer and Jürgen Botzenhardt founded in 1969 Pan International. And using this, using this scheme, Botzenhardt put down only 8,000 Deutschmarks of his own money, which is not a lot of money toward this plane. Everything else was financed by selling limited shares. Incidentally, that's about that's about a thousand dollars. So they were the first, but a lot of other airlines quickly followed after this. I think in total there were something like thirty, and these became to be called dentist airlines because they were financed by moderately rich but financially illiterate dentists. Was basically the idea, um, and these airlines were ridiculously unsafe. So the International Air Transport Association called the people who were founding these airlines, quote, unscrupulous entrepreneurs whose only goal is to make a quick profit without regard for travelers. Which is still technically true. I think that's libelous. I think I might have to edit that out. Okay. So Pan International was the one of the first and as it turned out, one of one of the worst. They quickly became known as Panic International, and we're going to learn a little bit about why in just a moment. Basically, the way the way Pan International worked is they got an exclusive contract with the travel agency belonging to former Olympic equestrian Joseph Neckerman, Joseph Neckerman, which left them um, con contractually obligated to undercut the prices offered by um, uh, Condor Flugdienst by ten percent. So they, they were, it was literally whatever Condor charges to, um, to take chartered travelers somewhere, Pan International was required to do it for 10% less money. <laughs> so obviously they were operating on a shoestring budget. And then to make matters worse, at the end of 1970, the tax loophole was, was closed. So af after, to keep that in mind, af that after that, uh, it was specifically illegal to claim special depreciation on a holiday charter jet. They literally put um, wording into the, into the law that said these planes are excluded because of these guys. So let's go to the next slide. We have a timeline of events in the brief life of Pan International. So we begin um, with an, in May 1969, which is when the airline is being set up. And so Tromer and Botzenhardt at this point began selling seats on aircraft chartered from other airlines because they didn't have their own air operator certificate yet. So they couldn't, they could not yet fly the plane that they had just financed, but that wasn't going to stop them. In the meantime, in order to get an air operator certificate, they are getting um, reviewed by the Luftfahrt Bundesamt, or the Federal Aviation Office, or LBA, as I'm going to call them. And so on June 30th, 1969, the LBA finds that Pan International doesn't have a single pilot qualified to act as pilot in command. And you would think that this is kind of disqualifying, but the very next day, on July 1st, 1969, the Ministry of Transport issued them an air operator certificate. Hmm. 
they began flying to various des holiday destinations, especially like lesser known holiday destinations, including in Africa. So December 1969, the LBA inspects Pan International and finds that their flights to Africa are over the maximum takeoff weight. The crews haven't been instructed on safety equipment, the flight operations manual is sloppy, and this report says it would be inadvisable to approve fleet expansions for this airline. <laughs> the press gets wind of this, and by January 1970, the Ministry of Transport becomes concerned about press coverage of Pan International damaging the reputation of the industry, so they ask the LBA to draw up a report on its plans for surveilling this airline. So in February 1970, the LBA issues its report, which says that the airline, quote, gives cause for concern and possesses defects that pose, quote, a danger to traffic safety. So, but nothing, nothing happens. So in April 1970, the Ministry of Transport orders the LBA to conduct a special inspection of Pan National again, um, because things are still bad. But one day after that, the same Ministry of Transport approves Pan International to acquire a second BAC-111. So again, the first, the first plane that they purchased with this was a BAC-111. We're going to talk about that plane in detail later. But so, so now they have a second one. And on April 29th, 1970, the airline's director of flight operations tells the LBA that, quote, under the current circumstances, we are unable to maintain safe flight operations. And so obviously this is the end. No, I'm just kidding. Nothing happened. So on May 15th, 1970, the Ministry of Transport approved the, their acquisition of a third BAC-111. And sometime in summer 1970, the Director of Flight Operations was dismissed. So we, we don't know that it was because he said they were unable to maintain safe flight operations, but that's kind of the implication. During the summer of 1970, things continue to go south. On July 11th, the Deputy Director of Flight Operations and the Chief Pilot wrote to management that their pilots are unqualified on African routes, they have insufficient knowledge of, and skills, their flights to Djibouti, I don't know why they're flying to Djibouti, but they are, are too long, and so the planes are landing with less than minimum fuel. And they wrote, quote, Do the limited partners really know what happens to their money? Do we have to wait until something happens? Let's put a pin in that one. Of course, the limited partners don't care because this is all just a tax write-off for them, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is for now. Obviously, they get they end up being left holding the bag in the end because the loophole got closed. But for now, it's they don't care. <laughs> so anyway, August 14th, 1970, the LBA inspectors write to the Ministry of Transport to state that the airline's pilot training was completely inadequate, and so the ministry suspends the certificates of 17 Pan International pilots. Um, but also in August 1970, Pan International applies to add Boeing 707s to its fleet for long-range flights and gets this approved by saying, Pinky promising that they will fix the problems. Obviously, that doesn't happen. November, in November 1970, an LBA inspector found that the, the airline's Dusseldorf maintenance facility was, quote, completely inadequate for the maintenance of commercial aircraft. We will be revisiting this facility later. Keep that in mind. And the inspector wrote a letter threatening that Pan International would be shut down, but the LBA director told him not to send it because that was not the position of the agency. <laughs> so... 
So Pan International continues flying, and in January 1971, the LVA finds that Pan International has again failed to carry out any corrective actions. An inspector finds that, quote, the airline, quote, lacks the prerequisites for orderly and safe flight operations. And this finding is not transmitted to the Ministry of Transport. They don't want to hear it. And in fact, in February 1971, the Ministry of Transport approved the acquisition of a fourth BAC-111. And in March 1971, they approved two Boeing 707s. And around the same time, possibly as a actually as a condition of approving the 707s, they hired the former LBA examiner, Joaquim, Joaquim Kunal, as director of flight operations. So Kunal gets in there, and he immediately finds this airline is a mess. So he writes a letter to the chief pilot complaining of various problems. He says a 707 had to abort after a mechanical lock was left on the fuel control linkage. A 707 lost two engines because of uncleaned fuel filters. A literal scrap metal was being installed on aircraft, among other problems. That was on June 20th, 1971. And on July 6th, 1971, Kunal is suspended from his position without notice. Which is clearly retaliatory. This was less than two, this is two weeks later. So the very next day, July 7th, Kunal goes to the Ministry of Transport with his concerns and urges the ministry to immediately shut down Pan International. But the Ministry of Transport is like, nah, we want to, we're going to just order, we're order more inspections. You know, we, we need to, um, we need to learn more before we just believe this guy's allegations, right? You know, <laughs> so, so they, they order another inspection. Nothing comes of that, except that the LBA demands that they that the airline fill the post of director of flight operations by either August first or fifteenth. Sources are don't totally agree on that date, but sometime in August they were supposed to have hired a new director of flight operations. So, but they just didn't. They just ignored this totally and never hired another director of flight operations. And September rolls around. And we're, when we're going to pick up this, sto this story of this accident, they still do not have a di director of flight operations. Which obviously leads us to ask the question, why? Why? So next slide, yes. Okay, we have a picture of a man. Tell me who this is. Our big question here is how does this airline keep flying? How is this possible? And you're looking at the answer. Trummer is bribing his personal friend, the SPD parliamentary secretary, Carl Wienand. So this, yeah, this guy is basically the um, equivalent of the chief whip for the Social Democratic Party of West Germany. Yeah, yeah. So they had paid him 162,500 Deutschmarks in 12,500 Deutschmark monthly installments for, I need to do scare quotes here, consulting... Wienand initially tried to claim that this was actually a repayment of a personal loan, but he eventually admitted that, no, it was for a consulting. The Minister of Transport testified that Wienand had told him that he would approve a personnel increase for the LBA if Pan International was granted landing rights in Brazil. Yeah, so this was a whole thing. The... Um Pan International wanted to contract with a company called Hotel Plan to do charter flights to Brazil, and they ran into issues with the, um, 
the authorities did not think that their director of flight operations was experienced enough to handle such an operation because he was literally this the, their director of flight operations at that time was like a ticket agent that was his qualification in comes Carl Vianand who to resolve the mess right so Tassilo Tromer allegedly told or was it, no, it may have been Botsenhart told hotel plan that it was like, oh yeah, this 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 will be a resolve because I've got my man Vianand on it. <laughs> the way he decided to resolve this issue was promising to bribe the Minister of Transport. Just fantastic. And then Vianand allegedly paid off a whistleblower who had threatened to expose these flight these massive flight safety problems in the air charter industry. And I, I should point out that Pan International was far from the only company that was doing this. There yeah. were there were many others that were very heavily underregulated. Um, the difference yeah, in this case, the difference in this case is that Vinand actually paid off this whistleblower allegedly using money that he'd gotten from Trommer. Yes. Cool. Yes. And so then we get to this. So there was the LBA had issued this ultimatum to hire a new director of flight operations, right? And what? So whatever happened to that? The ultimatum didn't turn out to be very ultimatum-y, um, because they kept flying without one long after the proposed deadline. So allegedly, what happened is when he when Vietnam got wind that his friend's airline was going to be shut down he came in and said no you're not going to do it and that's why they they kept flying past the deadline um we don't we don't technically have like a paper trail that that proves this but people testified that this this is what happened i see no reason not to believe it i mean looking right, at this guy's yeah. this guy's history even outside of this affair he was absolutely fabulously corrupt. The only thing he loved more than himself was money. <laughs> if corruption was chess, this guy would be a grandmaster. And I don't mean like a small grandmaster. I mean the kind that beats IBM's computers at, at, at chess or at corruption, corruption rather. Right. <laughs> so so here, here's the thing, Virus, is... is West Germany at this point was only a couple of decades old as a country, right? The, the sort of very concept of Germany is still relatively new. They're they're trying to build a country, build a government. They're trying to hold a country together with both hands. At the same time, they have three different allied powers that are all sort of constantly vying for, for some sort of backhanded control. There was a, a lot of ways for guys like Vinand to get themselves another house in the Baltic, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. And there's also sort of these these weird loopholes where a lot of times he did it legally because at a certain level, legitimate business becomes totally indistinguishable from organized crime. Yeah, and actually, what they got him for with the um, being bribed by um, by Pan International was not that he was bribed; it's that he didn't pay taxes on the bribes, literally. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's the Al Capone method. Uh, yeah, it's the Al Capone thing. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that because West Germany was such a new state. Um, the administrative state hadn't really gotten itself set up yet. A lot of their regulations were very porous. And as a consequence, there weren't really these strong institutions that in a more developed state might have picked this up sooner than it did. Yeah. So apparently the pan-international affair, as it was known at the time, was one of the first big publicly known corruption events involving Vinand. But there were a lot of others. He, there's like, he doesn't, doesn't have an English Wikipedia page, but he does have one in German, and it's like a long list of corruption affairs he was involved in. Um, 
at one point he was involved in a, um, wait, which one of you was it who knows about the industrial facility? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay, so he was supposed to, he was supposed to be involved in some way in the approval of an incinerator plant, a, a garbage incinerator plant. It turned out that he actually, through his political party, the SPD, he took more than two million Deutschmarks in bribes relating to the construction and operation and approval of this one incinerator plant. He got caught doing this in, in about 1999. He, he actually got caught a lot. I mean, obviously, we really only know about the things where he did get caught. Yeah, and including... He got caught repeatedly, and he just grifted harder. I mean, you really have to admire that kind of commitment to the bit, but... I was going to say, you have to hand it to him, but in fact, we don't have to hand it we to him. We do not have to. You do, yeah, it turns out you do not have to hand it to Carl Vinand. Because who, Jay, who, who did it turn out was also paying uh, Er Vinand? Oh, yeah, the East German government. Um, they'd paid him a million Deutschmarks to spy for them. He got sentenced to prison but didn't serve any time. I, I, don't, I, I don't even know. I mean... Yeah, he... This, this only came out after unification. It was like, it was like, wow, this dude was a spy the whole time. You know, and nobody is shocked that he, he decided to do this for money. I mean, he was a spy for money. Because as I said, he the only thing he loved more than himself was money. You could pay him to do. You could pay him to do anything. <laughs> it's not clear that he. It's not clear that he ever actually did any spying. But it is very clear that he did take the million Deutschmarks. Yeah. So you know, there's that. Okay. Anything else on Carl Vinant? Yeah. So all, what you really need to know is Pan International stayed in business by paying this guy. <laughs> That is that is known. That is a fact. Yeah, this this one specific guy. We know this is how they stayed in business. <laughs> yeah, so this is the guy who is taking all the red flags and shoving them in a drawer. Yeah, so next slide. Ah, next right. section. Our next section is flying to the side of the crash. Um, so, Jay, you, you kind of come up with the name of this section. So kind of give us a rundown on, on what this phrase means. Not in this particular case exactly, but in many of these air crashes that we're interested in, Flying to the scene of the crash is about the confluence of circumstances that led us to the point where the accident could actually happen. Um, if any of you have heard about normal accident theory, uh, Charles Perrault's um, thing, you know that in these systems there are many layers of safety, m multiple checks at every level, all of which have to fail for something terrible to happen. And this, is, this section is about how we get here from there. But in this, in this case, not so much. The number of checks that had to fail was not very many because, as we just established, this airline's relationship to safety was virtually non-existent. Indeed. Okay, so let's talk about the 111. This is the wrong 111, isn't it? This, this is not the right. I yeah, yeah I this is definitely the wrong 111. Okay, well, this is my favorite plane, so can we talk about this one instead? No. I'm afraid not. Fine. Okay, let's talk about this dumpy little heap. Yeah, here we go. Here's the correct slide. Okay, so this is this is uh, uh, Delta Alpha Lima Alpha Romeo. This is the very this is the specific aircraft that was involved in the incident we're going to be talking about today. Um, so the, the BAC 111 is 
like I said, it's a weird, dumpy little airline. It's very low to the ground because it was designed to be loaded straight from the tarmac. This is not, you know, and this is not a glamorous aircraft that's that's going to be taking you to far-flung regions of the world. You said um, weird, dumpy little airline. Dumpy, dumpy little the aircraft. Dumpy little air, airliner, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a dumpy little airliner. So it's it's, by British British Aerospace Corporation. It's a, or British Aircraft Corporation. Sorry. Yes. Um, it's it carries about a hundred passengers. Has two rear-mounted engines and a T-tail. It kind of looks like a DC nine, but slightly slightly stupider. It's yeah. It's also significantly less powerful than the DC nine, and that will become relevant very yeah, very soon. Yeah, we're gonna soon. get into that. Uh, this yeah. in particular is actually the five hundred series, um, which will also become relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so these aircraft, this, despite what you know, you might think at the end of this episode, these actually turned out to be fairly sturdy, fairly reliable aircraft. Northrop Grumman was still using two of these as test bed aircraft, basically where they mount fighter jet noses to the front and then test the avionics until 2019. So at that point, you know, these aircraft were from the early 60s. So these these ended up being tough little birds if you if you knew how to uh, to to maintain them right. Yeah, they needed they needed careful operation, really. For our audio only listeners, what is on screen is a picture of a B fifty two, and a is that a Lancia rally car? Yeah, it's a group Group B rally car. Y you know the ones they banned because they were too fast. And they also kept killing people. Jay, what do these two things have in common? Uh, is it a body count? Nope, not that one. They both really need new engines. Not quite. Both of them have done enormous amounts of damage to the UK countryside. Nope, the other thing. They both trail black smoke when set to full power. Nope, the other, other thing. Oh, they both use water injection. Yes, that's it, yes, water injection. Okay, now, uh, what the fuck is that? Okay, so water injection is when you've got air being compressed very heavily, like in your turbocharged engine or in your uh, turbojet that the B-52 here has eight of for some reason, it gets hot because of Boyle's gas laws. And if you want to keep doing this and not melt the turbine wheel, then you need to actually cool it down. So you inject water and that boosts your mass flow rate and it cools the incoming charge because water has this enormous specific heat capacity. So, so, so basically, I think we could say Water injection. So, so it's a, it's a little confusing, and, and Jay, you will get into it. I think when we get into the chemistry slide, but, but yeah, a little bit more. People think about you spray water on a fire to put the fire out, and that's that's that is true because what a fire, what water does is it removes heat energy from the fire. But I will say the inside of a jet turbine, especially at full throttle, is quite a bit hotter than your stove. One would hope. So water water injected is gonna is gonna behave very differently than it would that, that you would normally be used to. Um, so basically, what we're we're talking about is plain nos. This is as as brought to us by Nos by Sir Vincent of Dieselberg. Vin Diesel, yes. yeah. Next okay. slide. Jay, would you like to talk about some chemistry? Oh, I get to use the word stoichiometry. Okay, so imagine all of these molecules here. These are. Um, your basic hydrocarbons and jet fuel, just like gasoline, is a mixture of all of these, except imagine all of these, but with between nine and 16 carbon atoms. Jet fuel is mostly N-alkanes, which is the, the straight wiggly one on the left-hand side there. You get your energy 
from turning those hydrogens into water and those carbons into carbon dioxide. And you do this by adding oxygen, which is conveniently available all around us, or at least right now. A jet engine actually controls how much heat it makes inside of its engine because a, an engine, any kind of engine, really is a heat engine. It works on heat. A jet engine controls how much heat it's making, and so therefore how much power it's making, by injecting more or less fuel. Car engines and you know piston reciprocating engines that you may be used to in light plane applications actually work with a throttle that controls how much air can go into the engine. And you can see a, a throttle body at the top of this slide here. But you can't really do that with jet engines because the throttle body would have to be as big as the jet engine, which, you know, is, is kind of a problem. And uh, so as a consequence, the way they work is by injecting more or less fuel. So jet engines always work very, very lean, very heavy on air and very light on fuel. It's fuel that you meter to control how fast this engine runs and how hot it gets. And this is actually really important, as we will see very shortly. So water is this relatively light species. It's an oxygen atom and two hydrogen atoms, which is, is very light. And because it's very light, it means that at a given temperature, it has a very high velocity, which means it exerts a lot of pressure. As a consequence, if you can increase the amount of water that's in the gas in your combustor, then you will get actually more pressure and therefore more work out of your turbine at the same temperature. So by injecting water, you cool down the mixture so you can add more fuel without cooking the turbine. But also, the water boiling in the combustor increases mass flow rate because water expands 1,700 times when it turns into steam. And moreover, by shifting the balance of molecules from being sort of some CO2 and some water into quite a lot of water and some CO2, that the water is, is actually lighter. And so therefore you get more work, more mechanical work out of the same temperature, the same thermodynamic temperature. And uh, that means that you can actually get more power out of your jet engines. Just a little bit, but it is more power. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Next slide. Okay. Yes. Okay. Talk about the Rolls-Royce Spey. Okay. This is a Rolls-Royce Spey, um, which... Okay. Okay. We're, we're going to say a number of bad things about the Rolls-Royce Spey. It's actually a great engine. It's a, it's a really reliable, low-bypass turbofan engine. It's been used... We're going to shit talk a very specific offshoot, a very specific model of the, of the Spey. Okay. So, yes, we are going to shit talk a specific model of the Spey, which is actually not the model of the Spey that you can see here on the screen. This is actually the um, model 230, which is the one that was fitted to the Royal Navy's version of the uh, F4, um, which is a, a fine fighter jet. The, the sort of pedals here at the back for the reheat, uh, I think, are the, the dead giveaway. Yeah, this one is fitted with, with an afterburner. Um, so jet engines, especially ones like this, uh, which are you know, quite old, 
run very close to their limits. Um, you can see in this table here that um, this is actually a table from the the document you can see on the on the top right here. Uh, we actually found the operating instructions for the Rolls-Royce Spey Model 511, which was used in the Model 400 BAC 111, which is not quite the same for reasons that we'll go into a bit more shortly. And you can... We have sort of a thermodynamic coffin corner I want to point out, which is that the difference between expected temperature at takeoff and over temperature where you start the, the the I assume the metal actually starts to become plastic is 10 degrees. Yeah, it's 10 degrees C, which is I mean, that's room temperature differences, right? It's it's very it has to be very, very tightly controlled, especially when you're at this max takeoff thrust where you are actually right up to that edge. Normally at cruise. Um, the turbine gas temperature, which is what TGT stands for, uh, was 560 degrees. So it's really not that far off. That's only 30 degrees of, of difference between you're cruising just fine and you've melted your engine. So the BAC 111-500 was fitted with water injection because it was a stretched upgrade of an already underpowered plane. I, I think REU found that... Um, yeah, I, well, I found that I compared so I compared the um, the thrust produced by the BAC one eleven five hundred and its two Rolls Royce Spey engines versus the um, the DC nine and its JT JT eight Ds. So the co a comparable DC nine in terms of number of in terms of passenger capacity has like twenty percent more thrust than the BAC one eleven five hundred, and the so this is this plane is underpowered. And it was it was underpowered at, in the base model, and then when they decided to stretch it to the Dash five hundred model, it became even more underpowered. Yeah, yeah. So and it was stretched what thirteen or fourteen feet. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was a pretty good it was stretch. A, it was a big stretch. Um, it was. It was going from about eighty passengers to about one hundred and twelve. The maximum takeoff weight went from seventy eight thousand five hundred pounds to 104,500 pounds, which is, what, 26,000 pounds? Yeah. A little bit less than 13 tons? Wow. They upgraded the engines. They did upgrade the engines from 11,400 pounds of thrust to a dry takeoff thrust of 12,000. A slight upgrade. Yeah, it was a very slight upgrade, but it, it wouldn't have given them acceptable climb performance, and it definitely wouldn't have given them acceptable engine out climb performance. It it would have been it would have been impossible. So they actually they added an extra feature. They added this water injection system, which increased the maximum takeoff thrust, which you could. Uh, you know, maintain actually for less than the five minutes, it says here, uh, to 12,550 pounds. And it was still really marginal. The climb rate with two good engines dropped to only uh, 2,200 feet per minute, which is, that that's barely certifiable. 
But this is not a spay yeah. with injection. This is one from an F4, which is a, a much better plane. Uh, with the reheat turned on, it makes a little over 20,000 pounds of thrust. Um, interestingly, so, interestingly, if they had actually fitted this one to the BAC-111, there would be two airliners that have afterburners, and both of them would be made by BAC. Yeah, well, and the BAC-111 would have just been a better plane. <laughs> it would. It would have, yeah, they, it, they, they, they needed an afterburner. I mean, it's Like, listeners, simple. I think if you're, if you're picturing an aircraft able to stand on its tail, like an F-15 can, this is not. This is not going to give it the ability to do Top Gun Maverick shit. This would have made it barely acceptable as a tail-mounted airliner. Okay, let's go on to the next slide. So water injection was added to the BAC 111-500 series because it was not powerful enough to carry the stretched version of the plane into the air without it. And as far as we can tell, this was like a slapdash job that was put on it at the last minute by BAC. Yeah, listeners, so we, we did pretty extensive research. As you saw, Jay was able to acquire an original uh, user manual for one of these things. We reached out to museums that had that still have surviving copies of this aircraft to see. We cannot find documentation on this system anywhere. We did extensive research and nobody seems to have diagrams or checklists or maintenance procedures. So it looks like this very well, this was just sort of a hacked together system, presumably uh, at in between Rolls-Royce and BAC. Yeah, we, we were yeah, completely and... unable to find any documentation of any Rolls-Royce Spey that was fitted with this and you know okay so some of that is because this is an old engine and you know a lot of those records haven't been digitized but these engines and their descendants are still in use today they are literally everywhere mostly in applications where it doesn't matter how loud they are because it is a very low bypass um, turbofan engine so it it sounds like ripping silk. It's it's really really loud and obtrusive. It's it's made a it's, yeah it's made a decent uh, a, a decent career for itself actually believe it or not as a, a marine engine. Yeah yeah they're they're actually very good engines. Um, and you can you can see here actually this is a simplified diagram of a similar engine. Um, there's two spools. It's a two two spool engine. So the high pressure turbine runs the high pressure pressure compressor and the low pressure turbine runs the fan so those two things are actually running at different speeds and they can they can vary independently which allows the the blades on the high pressure compressor to be more efficient at the high pressure regime that they're operating in if you can see the label there that says low pressure shaft and the arrow that that's pointing inwards that is actually approximately the spot at which the water is apparently injected. But again, we can't find any information about this. We really tried really hard and we could not find any Rolls-Royce documentation or even anyone saying that these planes had this system because 
No, I do, we did. Okay, we do know that these planes did have water injection because I was like, I was digging around in you know like like pea prune forum posts from like two thousand one, and there were there were former BAC one eleven pilots in there talking about the water injection system, but like that's that's about as far as the documentation goes. On yeah, this. I I actually spent some time looking for BAC one eleven manuals, not necessarily BAC one eleven spay operating manuals, but you know the the manuals that the airlines would have would have used and i actually couldn't find any that were digitized i did try but you know we can't find any official documentation that that explains how the pilots were supposed to use this system or how the maintenance crews were supposed to maintain it more more to the point well we don't know how it was supposed to happen but if we go to the next slide we will find out how it did happen yes we have to talk about the barrels so, so I'm gonna I'm gonna drop a date. It is currently September fifth, nineteen seventy one, one day before the accident. So we are at the Dusseldorf maintenance facility belonging to Pan International, and one of Pan International's Boeing seven oh sevens is in for maintenance on what I think is a fuel pump. And to do this, they have to drain all of the fuel out of the fuel tanks. Shift maintenance leader. Eric Duvenhorst is on duty, and he has to answer the question, where are we going to put the fuel that we're taking out of this Boeing 707? So he sends someone into the, um, the uh, storage area at the facility, which is full of random crap, and they find some plastic um, 60 liter, was it 60 liters? Uh, yeah, yeah, um, 60 liter barrels. Yeah, some some plastic 60 liter barrels which are completely unlabeled they are, these are not marked in any way and he thinks those will be perfect so they drain the fuel out of the 707 the, this is the so they, they can defuel using a, a defueling system up to a point you can um after you can after pulling everything out that way there's still about um going to be about 100 liters of fuel left in the bottom of the tank that's unusable and it's just in there permanently and you have to take that out by opening the sump drain and so they were draining that out of the tank into these barrels and nobody knew what these barrels were for they were just there so it's like so they used them well people did know what and people did know why they were there <laughs> yeah but not these people these people didn't you see pan international 707s didn't have water injection some 707s did but these but the ones that pan international had did not have water injection so they they were unaware yeah. that there was this use for the barrels yeah, so these were these were 707 maintenance guys. They didn't know anything about water injection. They didn't know that what Pan International used these barrels for was to store demineralized water for the water-injected BAC-111s. And the reason they did this is because demineralized water wasn't available on demand at all airports. So they would have to they had to um, tanker it to the airports where it was needed on board the plane in these barrels stored in the cargo hold. Yeah, but the Pan International 707 maintenance crew did not know this. <laughs> and so they put they filled these barrels with kerosene jet fuel that they had drained out of the 707. It would have been trivial to label these barrels. Literally, Sharpies were in, Sharpies were invented in 1964, so it was within our technology to prevent this. 
I mean, also, uh, apparently, some guy thought that kerosene and water smell the same. So, so yes. So that is, we've got, yeah, we've got a couple, a couple of instances of people not being able to tell. So, so for, so we have, we have these, these barrels have been filled with fuel and now there's a shift change and the next shift supervisor, Dieter Brockerhoff, shows up at the scene and Eric Duvenhorst is still there because he's working past his shift. And now both of these guys, and sometime while both of these guys were there, someone told the maintenance crew to take these barrels and full of kerosene and put them back where they found them. <laughs> and we don't know who, we don't know which supervisor did this because they both said the other um, was responsible for that for reason, for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, these, it, what we do know is that these barrels were taken back to the storage facility and put with all of the empty barrels. So now fast forward to the next day, September 6th, 1971, and an order comes down to fill um, five of the 60 liter barrels with demineralized water to carry on board um, Delta Alpha Lima Alpha Romeo in order to um, supply the water injection system on a later takeoff that day that was expected to be near the maximum takeoff weight. So the company tells their a maintenance guy, um, Burnt Seifert, to go get five barrels of demineralized water. So he goes to the storage facility and he um, he gets he's picking up his five barrels and he goes, "Wow, you know, two two of these barrels already have water in them. Convenient." And this is this is where yeah. Where what you were saying is that this guy apparently thinks kerosene and water smell the same, and we don't really know why he didn't notice this. But but one of these barrels is full to the brim with 60 liters of kerosene, and the other, in theory, has 40 liters of kerosene in it. It's a little bit it's a little bit unclear um, exactly, you know, what the distribution was. Um, but what we do know is that. He thought these barrels had water. He did not check. For whatever reason, he did not sense an overwhelming s smell of kerosene when he looked at these barrels. And he took, he took, so he took all of the barrels to the demineralized water tap and he filled the, and he filled the remainder, including the one that was presumably the one that was partially full of kerosene. He added, added demineralized water to those and then loaded them into the cargo hold of Delta Alpha Lima Alpha Romeo. Job done. <laughs> quality, quality workmanship, absolutely. Yeah, so I should also, I should note that this water was necessary, that they would, they would have had to offload passengers on that later flight, which we are going to get to if they did not have water injection. But they also, they ordered him to fill up 300 liters of water, but that was the wrong amount. According to calculations later, they actually needed 386 liters for, for takeoff, and they were just like, we're going to do 300 liters instead, and seemingly nobody questioned this. Um, <laughs> so I guess the red flags are building here. So later later that day with the um, D, uh, Delta Alpha Lima Ro Alpha Romeo flies around a cities in Germany and Spain on that morning and early afternoon before arriving in Hamburg. And this is the takeoff where they are going to need water injection because they have a full load of passengers um, headed to 
Malaga on the coast of Spain. And so they are parked on the apron, preparing the plane for takeoff. Before the flight, they take out the, um, the barrels of demineralized water and um, the third pilot, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about all the pilots later, but the third pilot, who is an observer pilot, was, was outside the plane pumping the quote-unquote demineralized water into the water injection tank. And a ramp guy comes over and allegedly says, hey, this really smells like fuel. And the third pilot allegedly replied, everything stinks of fuel here. And he kept pumping. <laughs> he was completely... So, so what has happened now is that they have pumped 200 liters of water and 100 liters of kerosene into the water ejection system. So, so at some point here, the water ejection system is going to eject kerosene instead. And so in injecting kerosene directly into an engine is actually very useful. This is, this is what you would call a, a reheat or an afterburner. This, this one's working fine. Yeah, but the Rolls-Royce Spey is not designed to have preheat, aka, I guess, a before burner. So this is pioneering engine research they're doing here. Oh, yeah. On this dumpy little BAC 111. Okay, so let's now talk about this, let's talk about the, pio the pioneering engine research that is about to be done. Right, so as, as you probably know, kerosene being a form of oil is less dense than water. And because gravity is, is helpful, the water injection pump intake in the, the, for the um, demineralized water tank is at the bottom of the tank. So after they pump all of in all of the kerosene and water mixture, it separates out with the water on the bottom and the kerosene on top so that the water will be drawn in first and then the kerosene. So, so you basically, what we've done is we've, we've sort of lit a time bomb, right? Like a real Acme time bomb with a big long fuse. If we were going to do a clickbait yeah. title for this podcast, it would be something about a time bomb, I'm sure, for, for this particular incident. Yeah, so... And, and the other thing is, is when, one of the things we discovered in, in sort of our research is that there did not seem to be any sort of control or feedback mechanism for the tank, because obviously putting fuel in the, in the water tank was not a failure mode anybody had anticipated would ever happen. So there wasn't... Yeah, so the system, the system it, it, the only indication it would give to the crew is, okay, how much substance is in the tank? It can't tell whether that substance is actually water. The other thing is, so, so basically they have, they have no way of knowing that this time bomb is there. And secondly, because the water is going to be injected first, and there's enough water in there to get the plane off the ground, that they are not going to discover that this has happened until the plane is already in the air. This would have gone much better if this had only been fuel in the tank. Yeah, because the engines would have melted, you know, would have melted down as soon as they advanced the thrust levers for takeoff, right? And they would have just stopped on the runway. <laughs> yeah, shooting, shooting flaming parts of your engine out the back will get Tower's attention. That's true. Oh, and incidentally, the engines didn't have any way of knowing that this was happening because obviously it, it would appear that it, it was never designed to have this system in the first place. So, you know, it had no sort of checks and balances on what was actually getting injected. When we did our research, we found that in the report, they they sort of made a, a guess that had they had the additional 68 liters of water 
bringing them up to the to the 368 necessary. Or 386, yeah. Or three, yeah, sorry, 386. The accident would not have happened until a few seconds later, and most importantly, a few hundred feet higher than it actually did. Um, and, and you'll see very quickly why that, why that is a very, very serious problem. Let's meet the crew of Pan International Flight 112 to Malaga. So in command, we have Captain, um, we have Captain Reinhold Huls, who is, he has about um, 4,000 flight hours. So that's, that was not a lot for a captain in 1971, but there was a, there was a big shortage of, um, well, Pan, well, Pan International had recently ditched 17 of its pilots, if you recall, and was kind of scrounging around to find anyone who was qualified, especially because they had just re West Germany had just recently raised the qualification level required to be an airline pilot. So he, so he was, not, I mean, he was he was decently experienced, but again, pretty low for a captain in 1971. Um, and the first officer was Elizabeth Friska, who is notable for being the first woman to fly a passenger jet in West Germany. Um, at this time, she was still very new to aviation. She had about 1,000 total flying hours, but she only had 85 hours on the BAC-111, which she was just training up on. She was still flying under the supervision of an observer pilot who was... Um, Manfred Rode, who was also a first officer at Pan International, and he was the guy who was pumping in the few, the <laughs> pumping in the alleged water, who and said everything stinks of kerosene here. Now he had only 975 total flight hours, but because he had 487 hours on the BAC 111, that was considered enough to super supervise the probationary first officer Elizabeth Friska, and. I gotta say, I've researched a lot of accidents, and I've seen a lot of different. I've read a lot about a lot of different pilots. I have never seen a um, a supervisory pilot with that few flight hours. Yeah, this is this is just this, coincidentally our second yeah. accident in a row that needed a third person in the cockpit. So this is that's not relevant to the story. It's just interesting that it's that it happens twice in a row. Yeah, actually, the, this this flight crew did nothing wrong. Um, I mean, apart from not loading enough water. Yeah, we're we're barely gonna and we're barely even gonna talk about them because there was nothing they yeah. could do. But um, yeah. So they had a completely full load of 115 passengers on board and six crew, including the three pilots, three flight attendants. So that's a total of 121 people on board, um, who are about to take part in the pioneering before burner test. <laughs> so. I feel awful for laughing at that, really. Yeah, but okay, so basically, right, the um, permissible takeoff weight without, um, with this very full load of passengers without water injection would have been 45,800 kilograms, but they actually weighed 46,553 kilograms, so they had to use water injection in order to achieve the desired climb performance. They arm the water injection system, taxi to the runway, and are cleared for takeoff, at which point the plane's fate has already been sealed. Okay, this takes us to our next section. Let's talk about the actual accident sequence, which did not take... So, so listeners, we will be discussing the sequence of events in this accident for probably 10 times longer than it actually took. 
it was it was less than a minute and a half. Yeah, I think it was a hundred seconds or something, from ignition to impact. The entire flight is going to last ninety-one seconds, from take from takeoff to touchdown. Yeah, and it's going so it's obviously going to take us a lot longer than that to um, tell well ma- tell this story. They receive takeoff clearance. They advance the thrust levers. They engage the water injection system, and it begins injecting water. So the engines spool up to their extra high um, power setting. Everything appears to be working just fine, so they're off down the runway, and takeoff is normal. They get in, they get into the air. The water injection system is... It's a liter per second, so this is, this is it's dumping quite a lot of, of, of dynamic fluid into the combustion chamber. Yeah, we, we, did, some, we did some sort of back-of-the-envelope math on this, and the one liter per second per engine water injection rate is was probably not less than 50% of the fuel flow rate. So this was quite a lot of water that was being injected, just relative to the amount of fuel. And that's obviously about to become very significant because they get to a height of about 800 feet above the ground when the water runs out and the water injection system begins injecting kerosene. And this system is an on-off system. It doesn't have any flow control. There's no monitoring for it. It's either on or it's off. And when it's on, it's going at full speed. Yeah, so so just listeners, the, the first indication that the crew would have had that, that, that it, there was fuel in the water tank was when the engines exploded. Yeah, so basically the water injection system began injecting 95% pure kerosene directly into the combustion chamber at a rate of a one liter per second per engine, which was, again, at least 50% of the existing fuel flow rate. So we're talking about engines that are already at, at max power suddenly be given, being given an at least 50, if not 100% increase in fuel flow rate. <laughs> this should never happen. <laughs> In fact, a calculation of the total thrust actually showed a brief, a very brief, increase in thrust from about 22,500 pounds to about 26,500 pounds within 12 seconds at the end of the climb, and then a steep drop to a maximum of about 1,500, which was probably precipitated by what you can see on the screen here. That used to be a turbine disc. It did. It did. It used to be a turbine. So the um, the the engine overheated because with so much fuel suddenly being injected into the combustion chamber, the engine overheated in a matter of seconds. In fact, the um, the kerosene coming out of the water injection nozzles like burned molten trenches through the combustor cans. It was destructive. yeah. It's a bit like the the that, that and, old meme about how Chernobyl met the Soviet Union's entire annual power production goal in ten microseconds. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like that. So within within seconds, the um, combustion chamber experienced an, a heat-related overpressure event. The engine, Both engines surged catastrophically. Air forced its way back through the, um, the compressor section. The turbines ripped themselves to shred. As you can see, this, this high-pressure turbine was supposed to have blades that reach out to the um, dashed line, but they have all been chopped off just below 50% of their um, span. <laughs> By, I'm pretty sure. I'm yeah. pretty sure that the high-pressure turbine wheel works better when its blades have not been melted, sheared off, and then ejected out of the back of the engine through the low-pressure turbine wheels. 
yeah, jet jet engines are, are not. They're they're so these are engineered with such incredible precision and just the, the limits of 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 at the time known material science. Now physical limits on the materials themselves. Like we're we're very very closely approaching these limits. So these are the these are the environments that these machines operate in. Um, so yeah, when you when you start to to introduce uh, extra fuel, you now have an engine rich environment. Yeah, um, well, the, the the ground the ground behind the airplane is about to become an yes, engine rich. Exactly. Environment. There's there's all of the pieces that are being spewed out. There really here. is no way so, for a jet engine yeah. to fail gently. If something goes wrong, the entire engine comes apart very very quickly. Right. So yeah. So the engine base the engine is basically disintegrated, and so witnesses on the ground recalled looking up and seeing you know black smoke trailing from both engines of this plane. There was a lot of banging and ex sounds of explosions that were heard on board. The pilots immediately noticed their um, uh, power dropping to virtually zero. And so they're now in a certified oh shit Yeah, they would, have, they would have seen their, their, their TGT, sort of the exit gas temperature, spike completely off the scale. And then drop to zero because the... the thermocouple has melted. So because the Spey is a two-spool engine, this means that the high-pressure compressor is no longer driven because the high-pressure turbine drives the high-pressure compressor. So it stalls. It's no longer driven. It stalls. And you hear a bang, bang, bang as the unbelievably hot burning mixture of fuel and air actually goes out of both ends of the engine at once. Yeah, and I'm gonna. That probably voids the engine warranty. I have to think. I I, I imagine it's it's probably against Rolls Royce's warranty. Yeah. So so now the crew of Pan International Flight 112 are in a situation where they have climbed to a maximum height above the ground of not more than 900 feet, and they have no engines. So the captain immediately radios air traffic control and says they have an emergency and would like to turn back to the airport which they're given permission to do, but they don't do because of something that is known as the impossible turn. So after, when, when you have an engine failure on initial climb, there's this idea that it, it's, it's, the, okay, it's theoretically possible to make a um, 180 degree loop and come back without engine power and land on the same runway you took off from in the other direction. But it's called the impossible turn because People think they can pull this off, but usually they actually stall the airplane in a crash. Um, yeah, you you have you have a descending wing stall or a bank stall, which is which is a very frightening uh, and very very deadly. Yeah, and there's no way to recover if you um if if you you've stalled during the impossible turn with no no engine power. So so the crew very very wisely decide not to attempt the impossible turn, despite having received permission to attempt it and look for a site for a forced landing somewhere ahead. And there are a lot of trees and fields out here. You know, I think they could have made the impossible turn if they'd had Jato bottles fitted. Hmm, you know, perhaps. If they'd followed my advice to put reheat on them. Every, every accident we're ever going to talk about could have been prevented with Jato bottles. <laughs> but since they didn't have Jato bottles... So we're landing on, the, on De Autobahn. They decide that the best place to land is going to be on the A7 Autobahn in the village of Haslo, just outside Hamburg, which is a newly opened stretch of Autobahn, um, just opened that year. And 
it's not entirely straight, and it's got power lines, and it's got bridges, and there are road signs, and it has cars on it. Yes, it has a bridge, which we're about to get into. It has this right here. Um, this, this item will become very important. It's, it's not really an ideal landing site. And in fact, there's this idea in popular culture that you can land an airliner on a highway. And, but actually, base, base, it hasn't been attempted very many times. But every time it's been attempted in an actual passenger airliner, it has ended in more or less in disaster. So it's, in general, it, we know now that it's better to make it a forced landing in a field because there's less to run into. But nobody had actually tried to land a full-size jet airliner on, on a, a you know, major highway before this. So unfortunately, the crew did not really know what the consequences would be. So... So Captain Hulse lines the plane up with the not-quite-straight um, stretch of the Autobahn and has no time to even make a brace-for-landing call to the passengers or anything like that. He just puts it down because the entire time from engine failure to the plane is hitting the ground is 66 seconds. They have about a minute. That was how long they had to... Um, um, to find a place to land. And actually, they, they didn't even have all of that time to think about it because after a certain point, they were committed to wherever they had already picked. So they had, they had literally seconds to pick, and this is where they picked. So Captain Hulse touches the plane down. At, the descent rate on touchdown is about 2,000 feet per minute, which is it's bad. That, that number that is, is too high. than the landing gear can actually handle. Yeah. And they're traveling at about 150 knots, and they're going. They're moving against traffic in the southbound lanes heading north because because the northbound lanes were full of commuters leaving Hamburg and heading to the suburbs. So, incredibly, there were actually no cars coming at coming southbound on this stretch of the highway at that time. So the plane did not hit any cars. However, because of the high rate of descent on touchdown the left main landing gear immediately collapsed. The, um, the left wing struck um, a call box and then uprooted the guardrail, and the entire plane slewed around into a um, dramatic side slip, nose left, and then plowed sideways into the bridge that was seen in the, um, the previous slide. And this diagram that's currently on screen shows what happened to the plane when it hit the bridge. So the bridge pi support pillar on the um, west side of the highway sliced through the pass forward passenger cabin in the area just behind the cockpit and for forward of the wings and split the airplane into two pieces. Basically everybody who was seated in the area directly hit by the bridge pillar died instantly. So we're talking about the area on this diagram now between um, rows roughly one or seats seats one through you know through 46 is the general area we're talking about and some people obviously some people did survive in in this area but anyone who was in the part that was directly impacted by the bridge bridge pillar did not survive after hitting the bridge pillar and being split into two pieces the plane continued the cockpit slid to a halt in a ditch beside the road the rest of the plane including the wings aft cabin and tail section 
spun almost a full 360 degrees down the highway and off the side of, onto the margin into the grass and came to rest straddling a ditch miraculously intact and everyone who was in that section of the plane essentially walked away. Now, this, the um, image that's now on your screen is the cockpit and the very scattered re remnants of the part of the plane that ceased to exist. Yeah, any, pretty much any part of this aircraft that hit the bridge was just turned into just confetti. Right? It was tiny, just, tiny it, pieces. Yeah, yeah an, an insane but amount of incredibly, energy. Incredibly, the, all three of the pilots survived this crash because the cockpit was, was sliced off in one piece. And now all three of them were seriously injured. The third pilot, Manfred Rode, had a um, significant head injury. Elizabeth Frisco broke her leg. Um, Captain Re Reinhold Hulse actually was not badly hurt. In the passenger cabin immediately behind them, 18 people died instantly on impact with the bridge. And two more died um, in hospital and another en route to hospital. So in to um, a or two more at each actually so four four more people died after the crash in the um next 24 hours so in a total 22 people died out of 121 on board but 99 people survived most of them seated in the back of the plane where they just walked out through the hole in the big hole in the fuselage and were fine and there was no initially no fire this is what that part of the plane looked like um, after, immediately after everyone had gotten out, this photo was taken by someone who was on the scene even before emergency crews were. And a fire did eventually break out amid sp spilled fuel that was pooled in the ditch underneath the tail section. But, um, and this fire eventually consumed most of the, uh, most of the airplane, but it, not until after everyone had left. So there are some... There are some accounts of this crash that imply people died in the fire. Nobody died in the fire. After the plane hit the bridge, that was it. If you, were, if, if you did not receive fatal injuries at that point, you survived this crash, which is really quite incredible. So now let's talk about the aftermath. So, okay, so basically what we had is we have a, a massively overweight, shitty little plane built by BAC in the 60s with absolutely full fuel tanks whose engines have just melted down. It lands in a hostile environment. It goes sideways into an Autobahn bridge at, at, at probably 150 knots. And almost everybody on board survives. And I have this little rover here because this was built around the same time in about the same part of the country. So the same people built both of these. And this was, this was designed in the 1960s when plain interiors were required by law to be made out of fireworks and napalm. Except for the parts that were made out of asbestos. It's even more surprising that almost everyone survived. Really, really shocking. Yeah, no, they were very, they were very lucky that fire did not break out until several minutes after the crash. If there had been a fire immediately, the death toll would have been a lot higher. But as it stands, 99 out of 121 people on board surviving, that's a pretty good record. And I gotta say, kudos to the pilots for pulling it off. Yeah, so obviously... The airline goes bust pretty quickly afterwards. Um, the only people that face any sort of consequences are the two mechanics. Uh, I, I do have the article that they were indicted. Uh, Kirik, do you know if they actually served any sort of time? Um, I think they did. 
Yes. So yeah, obviously the only the only people in this story who are innocent were the pilots I, and obviously the passengers. But at every level, you know, if we go back through this sequence of events, we had this airline that never should have been flying. It was founded in order to um, evade taxes. They were repeatedly judged to be completely unsafe, you know, should not be flying passengers. Um, you know, a powerful politician keeps intervening because he's been paid to try to keep, to prevent this airline from getting shut down. They are flying with, you know, in the most horrible conditions without proper personnel. So, you know, the, the, somebody fills, fills barrels, un, completely unbarreled labeled barrels with kerosene and they get loaded into the water injection system. It destroys the engines. They make this emergency landing. It was It's a complete shit show from beginning to end. And there are a lot of people on here who probably deserve to go to jail, not least among them, Tassilo Trommer and Jürgen Botzenhardt, the founders of this airline. Nothing happened to them. <laughs> so... Yeah, so so they, they, they the airline went broke pretty much immediately after this crash, right? Because these guys obviously... Yeah, actually, they kept they kept flying for a couple of weeks after this, but... but um, I would call that pretty immediately. Travel agency, yeah, well, then, yeah, the, ne the Neckerman's Travel Agency, which was responsible for most of their business, pulled out of their five-year contract because it was give, the, the crash was giving them a bad name. So they lost, that, they lost, they lost like 90% of their customer base in that. And so they, they very, very quickly ran out of money. It's a bad look to kill 20 people. Who knew? It is, in fact, a bad look, especially if that's the only reason anyone has ever heard of your airline. So I want to talk about Christoph <laughs> Michael, okay, and, and Emerald Airways. Ah, uh, yes. So, Traumer and Jürgen are completely broke, right? So these guys, they've lost their customer. They have suddenly have a lot, of a lot of airliners that they need to fix, and obviously they've just had a fatal accident. So they have a lot of things they need to do with. They need cash right now. So they get a call from a guy named Christoph Michael. And Christoph says that he is, uh, I believe, the, the chairman um, or the CEO of Emerald Airways. It's a U.S.-based airline. And he wants to give them a $5 million cash injection immediately. And they are so excited. They fly this guy out. They wine him. They dine him. Um, I believe there were stories of trauma giving this guy rides in his personal Mercedes up and down the Autobahn. Yeah, and uh, his girlfriend. And apparently. his girlfriend. Yeah, so this, this guy lived... Live large on on what was left of Traumer and Jürgen's uh, bank account, and then obviously it fell it it fell apart because there was no Emerald Airways. It's not an existent. Christoph was just a man with delusions of grandeur. Um, I don't believe he was grifting. You know, this was not necessarily an issue of crime. I think there there is sort of enough evidence to say that he he probably genuinely did think that that he was the CEO of an airline. Um, but if not, then this is a Nigerian prince level scam that these guys got sucked into. Yeah, he, um, you know, they, they, they totally bought this hook, line, and sinker. Like, they were going to their pilots and saying, you know, don't worry, stay with the airline. You know, we're going to have this, you know, this injection of cash is coming. Emerald Airways is going to save us. And the pilots were like, we've never heard of Emerald Airways. What are you talking about? And Traumer and Botsenhart didn't listen. They believed this guy. And he, so, so he had them, you know, whining and dining him, as Ari said, for 16 days before they figured out that this his airline wasn't real. Because the way he got them was, he was like, oh yeah, you can call this number to talk to the president of Emerald Airways or whatever. And so they called the number and an authoritative sounding American picked up and was like, oh yeah, totally, totally. 
um, I'm, I'm with Emerald Airways and we'll bail you out. And they, they never question this until more than two weeks into the scam. <laughs> Okay, so so as far as a lot of people went their separate ways, uh, I believe Hules uh, eventually got back in a cockpit for some regionals uh, for a regional airline. I do not have um, Kira. Do you know what happened to the other two pilots? Yeah, so I don't know what happened to Manfred Rode, the third pilot. So um, Captain Reinhold Holse flew for a, another airline for a bit, and then he got a job with the LVA, the regulator. Um, Elizabeth Friska initially struggled to find another job, but she eventually found a job flying business jets. And actually, she died in 1987 in a crash um, in involving, well, while carrying the premier of Schleswig-Holstein state, um, Uwe Barschel, who, um, um, who was the only survivor of the crash, coincidentally, um, only... He was discovered. He was found dead several months later with about a million different drugs in his system. Wow. Um, so I, he wasn't the sole survivor for long. But that that was the un, that was the unfortunate fate of the co-pilot. So, um, and I, again, I don't know what happened to the third pilot. So, so Traumer, I, I believe, was charged at some point with failing failing to fund pensions. Yeah, he did not pay into his employees' social security, but in August and September 1971, and so they dinged him for that. He was yeah. never charged in relation to the crash. Uh, Boats and Hart never received any sort of penalty, uh, and as we talked about, uh, the two mechanics, Duvenhorst and Seifert, were uh, were sentenced to seven months and eight months in prison. Yeah, so I don't know, two tier justice system, maybe a little. Yeah, um, and obviously, as, as we talked about, the by by the mid 70s. The entire charter operations had just kind of completely fallen apart. It was a very flash in the pan. Yeah. Um, because the tax loophole was closed at the end of 1970, so all these airlines had to become actually financially viable, and most of them couldn't. So the majority of the the dentist airlines in West Germany shut down within a couple of years, and you know we're left with things like Condor Flugdienst, which are still around because they were actually doing a good job from the beginning. So next slide. What did we learn? <laughs> Apart apart from don't put Jedi in a water injection tank, what what did we learn? Don't join a um, special depreciation tax financing scheme. Good advice. Good advice. If you're going to buy BAC 111s, maybe choose the version that hasn't been stretched out of all recognition. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I guess, look, look, realistically... Um, well, well, no, if, if you're going to buy a BAC 111-500, fit it with afterburners, not before burners. If you're going to buy a BAC 111, don't. Buy a 717 instead. They're much cheaper. 717. It's a 717 to you. Okay. okay. So, yeah, but realistically, this was this was a problem that sort of solved itself, right? Once once the loophole was closed in the end, the we had, by 1975, you, the oiled Margo was, was pretty soon on the horizon, so... It, you know, these airlines were going to collapse no matter what. Yeah, and they were basically f being fueled in part by the a completely explosive growth of this this charter industry in West in West Germany. That basically between 1961 and 1972, the number of charter passengers being carried increased 100 fold, and then that and then that boom leveled off. You know, in the mid 1970s, and things cooled down, and things became more reasonable. And the pan-internationals of West Germany all basically folded. Yeah, and water injection mostly stopped being a thing. So this stopped being even a potential failure mode. They need to be mitigated. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, modern jet engines are a lot more powerful. They don't need water injection to get the to drag exactly. the plane into the air. Okay, so that kind of brings us to the end of our story. And while we were doing some research, we found one thing that we think you guys that, that that's pretty cool. And next, next slide. slide. So we found Jurgen Bozenhart through a profile that was being done of him in a small German newspaper, and it talked about him as a bird watcher and as a grandfather and as an amateur uh, meteorologist. What it did not discuss was his participation in a tax scheme that involved that resulted in 22 deaths. Nor does it dis- dis- disclose, as I later found when I discovered his Twitter account, that he is a pro-apartheid racist. Yes, he he has him. He has very few tweets, but he has a profile picture of himself wearing a "Make Africa Great Again" hat, which is just is I don't know. It's yeah, very he lives silly. in he lives in Cape um, Town. He loves it there. And he talks about how great the 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 west coast of South Africa is. But but you know he doesn't he doesn't he hasn't actually said anything like overtly racist on his Twitter account because he doesn't have very many tweets, but. If you live in South Africa and you say and you're white and you say make Africa great again, it's pretty obvious what you're referring to. Yeah, it's to. it's not we're not connecting a lot of dots here. So anyway, yeah, we just thought that was weird. That was it was wild that you know, we I assumed this guy yeah, had he's still yeah, alive. Th- and, this guy'd be dead yeah. for decades. Just the fact that I found him and he's this was just oh, that is the only possible way to end a story with this much insanity. Yeah. So don't be this don't guy. Don't be this guy. Please. Main takeaway. Okay, all right. I also note that he created his Twitter account in November 2016, and he has that hat. Just saying. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, all right, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Our next episode will be on yeah. Malaysia Air 370. Yes, totally. As it definitely was this time, as promised. Not a joke. <laughs>